You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Uh, we'll be in chapter 12 today. Again, my name is Will. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thank you so much for choosing to worship with us today. Um, if you're feeling a little bit claustrophobic, we do have a relatively empty 9 a.m. service every week. Um, I know we wanted to get here for our kids, but next week, a great option uh, is that 9 a.m. So feel free to take advantage of that. Uh, we do 9 and 11 every Sunday here. Um, but, but as we jump into uh, the sermon today, um, we're jumping back into the Gospel of Mark. We took a break and went through the book of Esther. Uh, we've been in the Gospel of Mark for quite some time at our church. We love the Bible. We love to just preach verse by verse through the Bible. And, um, and what that does is sometimes it leads us into long sermon series where it takes us a while to get through a book. I'm covering six verses today. Uh, but we're going to, uh, for the rest of the year, uh, finish out the Gospel of Mark. If you don't have a Bible journal uh, for the Gospel of Mark, underneath our bookshelves back here um, on this side of the building, there's lots of uh, scripture journals. Even if you want to get up uh, during the sermon and grab one of those, feel free to do that. That's yours uh, to take home. Uh, we encourage you to take notes um, during the preaching, um, write prayers in that journal, and use that. Um, it's got the Bible on one side and, and a place for you to write notes on the other side, okay? And, um, and so as Marsha read to you, uh, we have this passage in Mark 12 where Jesus is um, asking some questions. And uh, if, if you're like me, you hear, you hear what Marsha read to you, and it's a little bit ambiguous, isn't it? Um, it's a little bit unclear. Um, now, if you've been coming to this church for a while, you know sometimes the preaching's like that. Sometimes you leave um, after hearing a sermon, and you're like, what was the point of that? That's like, it's when Jeremy preaches. Amen? And, um, and, and so... <laughs> Not, not everyone I'm preaching. Um, but, but no, we're, we're flawed humans. We're not preachers as good as Jesus. And so we do our best. But even when Jesus preached, sometimes his teaching was ambiguous and it was a little bit unclear. And so he's asking these questions here. It says that the great crowd heard him gladly, but it doesn't necessarily say that they understood everything. And so where we find ourselves is when we open up the pages of the Bible, uh, we know that it is God's word for us. And sometimes it's a, you got to do a little digging to get to the meaning of everything. And so I want to try to do that for you. Let me start by going one verse back to verse 34 in Mark 12. Um, it culminates a lot of conversations that were happening with Jesus at that time. Just to kind of pick up where we left off in the Gospel of Mark, they were asking him question after question after question. They're asking Jesus, hey, what, what does the Bible say about paying your taxes? What does the Bible say about how to deal with your neighbors when they're hard to get along with? What does the Bible say about forgiveness? What's the, uh, what, what, can you explain the scriptures to us? And so they had sat in synagogues and churches their whole lives, and rabbis had expounded on the Old Testament, and they knew that there was prophecy of a Messiah coming, and so they were asking questions to see because Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, can he answer the questions right? And if so, and if he teaches with authority, maybe he is the promised one of the Old Testament. Um, and in verse 34, it says, when Jesus saw that one of them answered cor correctly, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after all of these questions, this long series in the book of Mark, uh, verse 34 tells us this, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Um, they understood Jesus knew what he was talking about, and he taught as one who had authority. And so Jesus here, even 2,000 years later, as we see this happen in Mark, we can kind of frame up our rightful place in scope of who God is. Um, Jesus here is framing up his rightful place as our sovereign ruler. That means he has an answer for every question you have. 
As you encounter things in your life, circumstances and trials and things that you wrestle with and struggle with and you don't understand what's going on, listen, Jesus has an answer for those things. Every question you have, he's got an answer for. And guess what? We have no answers for him. There's nothing Jesus is sitting in heaven wringing his hands about. Oh, I wonder what Will thinks I should do in this situation. I like to think that lots of people want to know my opinion, but in reality, most people don't. And especially the Lord does not need our opinions or our input or our advice. It's, it's uh, one directional. He gives us wisdom. And so in this passage, Jesus asks a question instead of being asked questions. He flips on them, changes gears here, and he asks a question from Scripture concerning the identity of the, of the Messiah. And so I want to show you three things that Jesus is today, if you want to write them down. Um, and he's going to uh, point these things out by uh, asking the right question. Number one, Jesus is the Son of God. Number two, Jesus is the Lord. Uh, so I want to show you sonship, meaning Jesus is humanity, and also lordship, which means Jesus is deity. That means he's God. And then thirdly and finally, we'll look at Jesus being our judge. Okay. Number one, let's look at the Son. Jesus is the Son. Um, at our church, as in, as in all Orthodox Christian churches, any church that is truly a Christian church, uh, they hold to a doctrine called the Trinity. You see this throughout the Scripture. You see it in thousands of years of creeds and confessions. Trinitarian doctrine is the belief that God has revealed himself as three distinct persons, yet one God. There's no good analogy for me to explain this to you well. It's hard for my brain to comprehend it. It fries my brain like an egg when I try to explain it to my kids. But it's hard to grasp, but it is true, and it's how God has revealed himself in his word, that he is three. That even in the book of Genesis, um, he, he says, let us create man in our own image. Let us move over the waters. Let us speak. That all the creation accounts are even plural um, in how God refers to himself. Yet God calls himself one God. And so uh, Trinitarian doctrine teaches us that God is three persons in one God, one Godhead. And so this is just mind-blowing to us. And guess what? The good news is it was mind-blowing to the first century Jews as well. They were confused by it too. And Psalm 110 was kind of the seat of some of that discussion and confusion. It was hard for them to comprehend Psalm 110. Now, the Psalms were like Jesus's red back hymnal. They were the songs that Jesus sang when he went to church. And so the Psalms in your Bible, right in the middle, there's 150 of them. Um, those Psalms are inspired by God, but they were songs that the people would sing. And Jesus here is referencing Psalm 110, which, by the way, is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. So more than any other psalm, 110 is quoted uh, more than any of the others. And so um, I would do a great injustice to this passage in Mark if I didn't take some time to show you what Psalm 110 says. So I'm going to kind of jump back and forth between those passages today. But let's look at verse 1 of Psalm 110. It'll be on the screen for you. It says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, I want, I want you to leave that verse on the screen for me. And I want you to look at this verse. And I've, I've got to go back into some Hebrew for you, so bear with me. Um, but in the Hebrew, uh, which is the original language this psalm is written in, uh, we learn a little bit more about what this psalm is saying. Now, you notice the first line. It says, the Lord says to my Lord. You notice the difference between the two words, Lord. One is in all caps. One is simply capitalized. Now, the all caps is not like the Bible translator was like your Nana on Facebook and left the caps lock on. All right. That's not what's happening when when they wrote the English version of this verse. What happened is there is there was an, a, uh, an English uh, uh, kind of shortcut to show 
what Hebrew word this is referring to. And so when it says Lord in all caps, it is Yahweh in Hebrew. Um, and, and if you remember, uh, if you've been to Sunday school at all, you remember the story of Moses when he was called by God to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt. He goes and he speaks to God through a burning bush and he says, who, you know, I've got a speech impediment. I don't know if I'm up for this task. God, who am I supposed to tell them sent me? And God says, you tell them I am that I am sent you. And so God refers to himself as I am. What a majestic name, right? This is God's formal name, Jehovah or Yahweh. And so God refers to himself as Yahweh. And in Psalm 110.1, so I'm put it back up there for me. Um, Psalm 110.1, I want you to see all caps, Lord is Yahweh. Okay. And so Yahweh says to my Lord. Now in Hebrew, uh, Lord in lowercase is Adonai. And this is a word that most literally translated, guess what it means? Lord. It's a good translation. Um, or it could mean master um, or sovereign. And so what this is saying is, is that is a reference to God as well. And so this verse, the reason it was confusing is it's like saying God proper is uh, speaking to um, God more casually spoken. And so it was confusing because it, it almost feels like God's talking to himself. What's going on here? Uh, one of my favorite movies, What About Bob? He says this great poem. He says, roses are red, violets are blue. I'm a schizophrenic, and so am I. Um, it was one of my favorite, <laughs> favorite poems. And, um, and so you read, Lord says the Lord, and, you say, and this is what the Jews were asking in the first century. Is this some kind of divine schizophrenia? What's happening here? Is God talking to himself? Well, God's not talking to himself. Rather, Jesus is bringing light to the subject that the Father is speaking to the Son. Father God is speaking to God the Son. And Jesus is teaching on the confusion of David having a son uh, that would come from his lineage, a great-great-great-great-grandson who would be his sovereign, be his king to rule over him. And, and all Jews in the first century kind of understood, and even Orthodox Jews today understand that the Bible clearly prophesied of someone coming from David's lineage who would be known as the Son or the Messiah. Um, in verse 35 of our main passage, Jesus teaches in the temple, and he says, How can the scribes say that Christ is the Son of David? Now, Christ is the term for the Messiah, the Savior that they were all expecting to come and bring salvation to them. We know that Jesus fulfilled those things. Now, 2 Samuel 7, 16 is God speaking to David, and he tells David, In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Uh, this is what scholars call the Davidic covenant. Um, there are literally hundreds of verses I could read to you for the sake of time I won't that show that the Messiah, the Savior that was prophesied in the Old Testament, um, was, was a coming Messiah from David's lineage. This is why at Christmas it's important that he was born in the city of David, Bethlehem. Now the dilemma was a son ruling over his father. In Jewish mindset, that was, that was absurd. That was something that couldn't happen. And so Jesus is showing that the only way that it would make sense was if the son was two things, human and divine at the same time. Now, there are lots of cults that exist today such as Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventism. Um, you just got a book from the Seventh-day Adventists in your, in your mailbox. Uh, throw that in the trash. Um, if, if you need to start you know, a fire at your house, that'd be some good kindling for you. Um, do that with that book. But, um, but lots of these cults will sell you short on one side of the equation. They'll sell you short on the deity of Christ, meaning that he is God, or they'll sell you short on his humanity. Um, it's important for us to understand that Jesus proclaimed himself to be both fully man and fully God. 
Now, in that, he's not a, he's not a weird hybrid. He's not half man, half God. He's not like a Prius. He's not like, I run on gasoline sometimes and I run on battery sometimes. He's not like God some days and man some days while he's carrying out his ministry. Jesus is 100% man, 100% God. Fully God, fully man, both simultaneously. Let it fry your brain. Let it bring you to worship of this true king. He's the son. He's also the Lord. So Jesus is proving this and he does it by... Pointing out Psalm 110, he quotes it in verse 36. He said, David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And I want you to pay careful attention how Jesus is revealing himself to be the Messiah. He doesn't just simply stand up and say, hey, y'all, I'm the Messiah. Now, he does say that, and he does claim to be God. He He makes statements like, before Abraham was, I am, which doesn't even make grammatical sense. He's referencing back to when God said to Moses, I am that I am. He's pointing out that he's God and that he is fully human, but he uses scripture to do so. Look at verse 36, how he begins it. He says, David himself, the author of the psalm, David himself, but in the Holy Spirit. Notice how he sets it up. Human authors, yet inspired by God himself through the Holy Spirit. That means the Bible is our authority for life. It's the cornerstone of how we live. This means that even when you read the Bible and it doesn't make sense to you, guess what? It's still your authority. Even when you read the Bible and it's boring and you fall asleep while reading it, guess what? It's still your authority. Even when you don't like what the Bible has to say, it's still your authority. It's essential. It's sufficient. It is God's revelation to us, church. That's good news for you. Because God hasn't left you kind of aimlessly walking around. He's revealed his son to you through his word. My wife um, is a great cook. Got to give her her cred here. But she's got a little system that helps her out. It's called emails. I'm going to get a check for plugging this uh, to you guys. I'm just kidding. Nobody laughed at that joke. I'm not getting paid for this advertisement. But she uses this app called Emails, which you can kind of pick the meals you want to make in a week and kind of meal prep. And, and then it puts all your ingredients together and you kind of drop them in your Walmart click list and then you just go and pick them up. It's super easy. Everything's, you know, in the bag, ready to go, barely an inconvenience. And, and so as, as that happens, um, you get all the things in your kitchen you need to make your meals for that week. And, and I thought of that in terms of uh, sermon preparation, you know, week after week, our pastors, we work on sermons, we work on a presentation, and there are different ingredients we kind of drop into a sermon, right? I know you guys get bored easily. Um, I, I've seen kind of the glossy-eyed look. I've seen you kind of doze into Facebook a little bit. So I've got to you drop a joke every now and then. I know you guys think I'm hilarious. i got to give the people what they want. Um, and <laughs> I know I've got to tell some stories. I know I've got to have proper application of the Bible into your life. So it's not just a book you're reading. It's actually something that's changing your life. There's these different ingredients you need to drop into good preaching. But sadly, I think more and more preachers are leaving out the, the chicken of the sermon, the, the steak, the meat, if you will. The main ingredient of the dish has to be Scripture. If you're preaching from anything other than the Bible, it's like trying to make dinner from the garbage can. It just, it just doesn't work. And, and so in our preaching at our church, we will always be rooted in the word of God. And, and it's because Jesus did the same thing. If the son of God himself, God incarnate, uses the word to reveal himself, then why would we deviate into any other thing? doesn't matter how entertaining or 
Um, fun it is to us. We root ourselves in the word of God, even when it's boring, even when we don't understand it, even when it's hard to comprehend, the word of God is sufficient for you, Christian. That's how Jesus has revealed himself to us. And so that's his humanity. Let's look at his lordship. Jesus is Lord. My second two points are shorter, I promise you. are like, dang, he's only on point two. I'm going, I promise. Jesus is Lord. So he is the Son, which means he's human. He's Lord, which means he's God. Remember, the deity of Jesus is something very important. And the Jews were longing for this great sovereign ruler that was better than Caesar. And they found it in Jesus. They just didn't find exactly what they were expecting. They were expecting a political revolutionary, which, by the way, I think many of us mistakenly look for today, too. But what they found was what they didn't expect, which made some of them reject that. But unbeknownst to most of them, what they found was something so much greater, something that, that, that was profound and would change them spiritually, not just physically, not just put them in a better tax bracket, but put them in a better spiritual bracket that would bring redemption to their souls. That's who they found. They didn't just find a son, they found a Lord. Verse 37 says, David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Another weird English translation here with throng. you got to make sure you read that right. That's not thong, that is throng. Um, and so this throng, that means crowd, this great crowd that was listening to Jesus preach, it says they heard him gladly. Now, I don't know that they understood him well. They heard him gladly. Now, I want you to be careful because I think sometimes we get in a habit of coming to church and We'll listen to preaching week after week after week, and we'll hear it gladly, but we won't understand it well. You know, how, you know that listening to preaching is an active thing? Y'all, y'all know it's not just because I'm from Lincoln County that I want you to say amen every now and then, right? It's because I want to know that you're actively listening to what's going on. You know that there should be a conversation, as I'm preaching, there should be a conversation happening between you and God? You ought to be praying as you're listening to the word of God being explained, asking the Lord, can you work on my heart? Can you bring to light sins that I had just glossed over through this week that I hadn't paid attention to? Can you do work in my soul, Lord, as I'm spending this time dedicated to you? That, that when we listen to the preached word of God, we must be active in it, yearning for God to change us. And if we don't, then we could just be like these crowds that are like, yeah, we'll hear it gladly and just go and Monday's just as average as it always is. But if we actively listen and beg for the Holy Spirit to move in our souls and change who we are, then, then that changes everything. And, it, and we build our whole lives on the truth of the Bible that we spend this time looking at. And so I think maybe some of the people got it, maybe some of them did it, and we're just not sure. But we do know that it caused... A great controversy. The Jews called this teaching blasphemous. Even though people heard it gladly, the religious rulers of the day called his teaching blasphemous because they understood well that Jesus was claiming two things. He was claiming to be fully human and the lineage of King David and rightful heir to the throne. And he also claimed to be God in the flesh. Now those are bold claims. And when you understand Jesus claimed those things in his teaching, you have to do something with that. You can't just have an average Monday tomorrow when you see Jesus' teaching. That has to impact your life. It has to impact your marriage. It has to impact the way you raise your kids. It changes everything. And Jesus, in case there was any doubt, even makes it more clear in, in just, uh, just six days after this, he's going to stand trial to be crucified. 
And as he stands trial, and let me fast forward in Mark to chapter 14, we see him answer the question more explicitly because he just asked the question in today's passage. He doesn't really give a clear answer. But in Mark 14, 61, it says he remained silent and made no answer. This is at his trial, not his Roman trial, by the way. This is at his Jewish trial. And the high priest asked him. Now, the high priest was the highest ruling elder in Israel. And the high priest asked him. This is very biblical language, very Old Testament messianic language. He says, are you the Christ? Meaning, are you the promised, foretold Savior? And in case you didn't know what that meant, he defines it even clearer terms. The son of the blessed. He's, he's making a reference to the Psalms. And, and he's even defining his terms. So like the Jewish stenographers over there, you know, like he's like, you got all this? She's like, yeah, I got it. And she's typing everything down. And this is a courtroom session, making sure that everything is said properly and in order. We want a clear answer from you, Jesus of Nazareth. Are you the Messiah? And are you the son of God that, that the Old Testament foretells? And Jesus answers in verse 62. Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, it's important what Jesus says here because he's given the answer to the question he asks in chapter 12, the passage we're focusing on today. This is the clear answer that the people couldn't come up with. And at hearing this, the religious leaders tear their clothes and call out blasphemy and sentence him to death because they understand what he's claiming to be. He's claiming to be fully man and fully God. He's claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be the only way to heaven. And if that's what Jesus is claiming, you have to do something about that. In 2021, you've got to reckon with the fact that Jesus made this claim. You can't remain neutral. You can't stay on the fence. You've got to accept it or deny it. And if you're just saying, I haven't made up my mind yet, the Bible makes it clear that you are denying it currently. Jesus says, two things in his answer, and I believe he's making reference back to Psalm 110. The first thing he says is, I am. They were probably speaking Aramaic, um, which is a kind of a sister language of Hebrew, which would have sounded very similar to the psalm, uh, which calls out Yahweh, I am, says to Adonai. And so he says, I am, I think acknowledging that he is God. And then secondly, he says, I am the son. He says, you'll see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. Now the right hand of power was language that was very clearly used in that same song. He's still quoting song lyrics, Psalm 110.5. The Lord Adonai is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. And as he speaks to governmental rulers, he says, you'll see me coming on the clouds of heaven. He says, you'll see me coming back as judge. And that's the third point I want to show you, is that Jesus is the judge. Now, Jesus spent a lot of his time calling out hypocrites. And I, I believe that, especially around here, hypocrites more than anything else tend to keep people out of church. I talk to people all the time that claim to be Christians, and only God can judge their hearts. I don't know but they seemingly have no desire to be a part of a local church, which is disobedient to scripture. But when I ask them why they don't want to be a part of a local church, the number one answer, if this is family feud, <laughs> the number one answer I get is because those people are hypocrites. And listen, we got a lot of first time guests here today. So let me just, let me just spill my guts real clear about New Heights Church. We are a messy, jacked up church. 
We got a lot of sinful people here. We got a whole lot of hypocrites in this room. All right. So before you're like, I don't know if I can go to that church full of hypocrites, I'll just tell you right now, like this church is wild. Okay. (laughs) I know I'm one of the pastors. Okay. (laughs) But I beg you to look to Jesus instead of the flaws of his church. And remember that Jesus is perfecting his church. And so we're on this kind of beautiful walk together in sanctification that we don't have it all together right now. And we need to acknowledge that we don't. But but Jesus is bringing us into glory and into perfection. But in so, church people, listen to me. You need to get your stuff together. You need to make sure your witness matches what you proclaim, that it matches your message, that it lines up with the gospel. Jesus had very harsh words to hypocrites. And here are some of them in verses 38 through 40. It says in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. He calls them out who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows houses for pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He, he lists four things very clearly that the scribes loved and they're all rooted in pride, sinful pride. One of them is long robes. We don't have that problem today, but um, you may have heard of people putting on their Sunday best. We, you know, we, don't, we don't really do that much at New Heights. Y'all are like, our, our pastor looks like he just walked out of prison. But, um, but, you know, for us, it might be the trendy fads or whatever. And if somebody comes in and they don't look like what you think uh, a New Heights person ought to look like, um, how dare we get judgmental just based on appearances? He says that's the place for hypocrites. They love greetings in the marketplaces. The, the sheer idolatry of popularity. That I want the most likes on my social media. I want to be the one that's the life of the party. I want people to just long to be with me. He said this is one of the sins of the scribes of Jesus' day. They wanted the best seats in the synagogues. Listen, I always, get, I always hate like when I, uh, I mean, I hate when I have to preach a funeral anyways because it's a funeral. But to, to add insult to injury is, is when they have like those thrones up in front of the funeral home. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like the wooden chairs with the high backs. And I'm already self-conscious because I'm wearing a suit and, and I got to sit like up in front of everybody. Um, it, it's just weird. And, and there are like traditional churches that, like put the clergy up front. That's kind of what the Jews did of the day. They put the rabbis up front so everybody could kind of sit back and look at them. And, and it just kind of fed their ego. And there's a difference between respect and feeding someone's ego. And your ego has no place in God's kingdom. Your, your, your own glory has, will not be shared with Jesus' glory. Just plain and simple. And then he even mentions taking the place of honor at feasts. There's a, there's a clear teaching in one of Jesus' sermons where he calls this out. He says that when you go to dinner somewhere, you're supposed to take the seat where the servants sit. Not a place of honor. You see, God is making it clear that he will judge those of us who seek to do ministry for our own glory rather than his glory. And these sinful desires will lead to pride in our hearts and they will inevitably um, lead to these detestable acts of which Jesus gives us two examples. The devouring of widows' houses, which is greed, and the, the pretense for long and flowery prayers, which is pride. God's not pleased with that. He's going to come back and he's going to judge that. And it's not popular to preach on God's wrath, but listen how Psalm 110 ends, verses 5 and 6. The Lord is at your right hand. We figured out that's Jesus. 
He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. That means Jesus is coming back and rulers of this world who do not submit to his kingship will be shattered by Jesus. If that's not severe enough language for you, the Bible continues, uh, hold your kids' ears. He will execute judgment on the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. I've already commissioned Baker to write a worship song about corpses um, and God's wrath. We're going to sing it with all the love in our hearts. Um, so I know we don't like to focus on those things, right? But this is what the Bible describes is God is not, is, he will not be mocked. God is, is holy and he is a ruling king and he's going to come back with wrath. But listen, not for those who have placed their trust in him. Verse four in Psalm 110 is an important verse. Because in all this sonship and kingship language, there's kind of thrown in this one kind of obscure verse that doesn't describe Jesus as a son or a king. It describes him as a priest. And that verse says, the Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I want you to remember that name because you might have a baby one day and want to name your child Melchizedek. It's a strong name. Um, But... This guy, Melchizedek, is, is, he comes from the book of Genesis. He's kind of an obscure figure in the Bible. And I, I'd imagine when they wrote the song, it was hard to find something to rhyme with Melchizedek. Um, but, but nevertheless, his name's in this song. And I, I just find it interesting that they threw this guy in there. It's like, what's the point of that? And the reason that he's in there is because he is a priest and a king at the same time. He's the only person in the Bible other than Jesus who is a priest and a king at the same time. Matter of fact, you were put to death if you were trying to be a priest and a king at the same time. Those were two offices that didn't mix. But in the culmination of Jesus the Messiah, we find both those offices fulfilled, meaning that Jesus is all we need. Melchizedek shows up in Genesis 14 with a guy named Abraham, who was formerly known as Abram, who God called out of pagan worship to establish a nation. He said, I'm going to bless you and your offspring is going to be numerous. And through the nation that will come from you, I will send my anointed Messiah, the promised one who will be the substitutionary atonement on a cross to raise from the dead, to pay for the sins of humanity. All that began in a promise in the book of Genesis. And to fulfill that promise, Abram had to have faith and he had to actually go to battle and his servants had to take their plows and turn them into swords. And and they had to take land that God told them he was taking them to. And it tells us this in Genesis 14, 17. After Abram's return from the defeat of Cardaleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And listen to this. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. So there we see Melchizedek is this guy. We don't know much about him, but we know he was a priest of God. It tells us that. And he was the king of Salem. In Hebrew, that's Shalom. And they actually called that city Yeru Shalom, which means foundation of peace in Hebrew or cornerstone of peace. And Yeru Shalom, if you say it over and over quickly, Yerushalem, Yerushalem, Jerusalem, That's where we have the city of Jerusalem, which is, of course, the capital city of Israel, God's place where his temple was, where Jesus was crucified. And so out of Jerusalem comes this king so long before this promise is being fulfilled in the gospel of Mark, and he brings out bread and wine. 
something that you're going to be presented with today. If you're a baptized believer, we're going to invite you to receive bread and wine. And what I love about this is Abram has no clue what's going on. He doesn't understand that one of his descendants is going to die on a cross. He doesn't understand that there's going to be a supper where Jesus compares his body to bread and his blood to wine. He doesn't understand what all that means, but he knows there's this guy who's a king and a priest coming from the foundation of peace, the city called the city of peace. And he's saying, I'm bringing you this meal that's heavenly. It's bringing peace to your soul. We're going to offer you that same meal today. And I want you to remember as you come, if you're a believer, if you're a baptized believer, we ask that you come and just remember this great truth. As you tear a piece of bread, remember that Jesus' body was torn for you in a great fulfilling and culmination of the entire Old Testament. And as you dip it in this juice today, that you remember that Jesus' body or his blood was all poured out. And as he sacrificed himself on the cross, he drank in all the wrath All the wrath that Psalm 110 speaks about and all the scary verses in the Bible that talks about hell and brimstone and all those things, all that defeat and wrath and anger was emptied out on Jesus instead of being emptied out on you. And you're invited to this king's table, but he's not just a king, he's a priest, he's a mediator who's offering you himself as atonement for your sins. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.